Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. What are invasive species? How do they cause harm to our ecosystem? And what can we do to stop them? We'll answer all of these questions and more on this edition of Getting Schooled. I'm Abby Hornacek. people talk about the environment in the media, it usually has to do with protecting the life that inhabits good old Mother Earth. But not all species are welcome in the ecosystems where they live. That's a whole different conversation and the one we are having today. If you have ever seen those pesky lanternflies, you've dealt with an invasive species. Some species are considered invasive because they are not native to the environment in which they live which doesn't seem like a big deal until you start thinking about how that can affect our ecosystems. The disruption to the ecological connections that already exist can wipe out entire organisms, affect our economy and the beautiful places that so many species call home. So what kind of species are considered invasive? How are they induced to an ecosystem? And what should we do if we come in contact with one? Here to talk me through all of this is naturalist with the National Wildlife Federation, David Mizajewski. And David joins me now. David, what's going on? Hey, Abby, how are you you doing? I am doing well. I was just telling Matt, who runs our audio, I um, I'm in a closet right now. I'm I'm visiting my family and my two nephews are here and there's a crib right next to me and I'm in the closet. And I was like, Matt, I should just get in the crib. But then I'd feel like an invasive species into the crib because I don't belong there. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I mean, Um, that's a little bit of a good analogy. And, and um, sidebar, I know exactly what that's like, because during the beginning of the pandemic, when I had to do these kinds of media interviews, there was no quiet place to do it. So I had to resort to hiding out in the closet as well. <laughs> you know what? It's just it's kind of nice. It's good. It's tight quarters. I feel safe in here. So <laughs> it's good. <laughs> Um, so, you know, we bring up invasive species and so often we hear about this and, um, you know, even if you don't spend a lot of time in nature, you know kind of what it is. But what kind of qualifications need to be met in order for a species to be considered invasive? And is there a basic definition you can give me? Yeah, and I think it's a really great place to start because there is a lot of confusion over exactly what this means, what you know an invasive species is, what a non-native species in is, even what a native species is. So the the simplest way of explaining it is that you know on Earth we have various ecosystems, and these are made up of all sorts of different species, and the the ecosystem is really their interaction with each other uh, and the natural environment, right? And and all of that has has evolved over hundreds of millions of years to basically the kind of the stable ecosystems that exist out in nature. And so a species that naturally, you know, exists in 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 any given ecosystem is native to that ecosystem. So when we start talking about non-native species and then and then invasive species, you know, by definition a non-native species would be some species, and, and by the way, this could be plants, it could be animals, it could be invertebrates, it could be marine 
creatures. It could be pathogens like bacterium and things like that. So really any kind of living species could be you know, considered a native or a non-native. So non-native species just are species that are introduced into ecosystems where they didn't naturally evolve. And they therefore tend to not have all of those very deep ecological connections that native species do. And it's those deep connections with all the other, again, living species and, and all of the non-living elements of the environment, including the precipitation and the soils and things like that and climate. Um, so those non-native species tend not to have those ecological connections, which is what makes ecosystems strong. And so sometimes non-native species without the natural checks and balances that it would have had in its native ecosystem begins to essentially kind of dominate and take over the new ecosystem to where it's brought. And when that happens, we call it an invasive species. And these are species that are non-native by definition, and they basically just sort of they can kind of reproduce in a way out of control and they tend to push out all of the native species that are naturally occurring in that area. And then you have this big ripple effect through the ecosystem and also through our economy too, because you know we rely on our ecosystems for you mm. know, our food resources and other economic benefits. And so invasive species not only are an ecological threat, they're an economic one too. Okay, that's really interesting. I just want to go back one step to something that you were saying before. Um, you kind of were describing how a non-native species becomes an invasive species. So is that the main difference between the two? Can there ever be a non-native species that doesn't become an invasive species? Not all non-native species will become invasive. You know, we have plenty of examples of of you know plants for example that you know we we garden with or that are food plants that have been sort of moved around the world and so that that are just not problematic the challenge is, is sometimes it's hard to predict when a species will become invasive and mm -hmm. interestingly with plants many of our invasive species actually got introduced as garden plants ornamentally and in some cases you know they behaved well in gardens for for decades and then you know suddenly enough of them kind of you know escaped the garden and escaped cultivation and started growing in the wild that they suddenly kind of boom and become an invasive species a great example of that is butterfly bush really popular garden plant it does indeed attract butterflies but in certain parts of the country you know, after being a great garden plant for, for decades, in the last few decades, it's begun to escape cultivation. And in places like the Pacific Northwest and in parts of the Mid-Atlantic region, we're beginning to see it get out into the wild and become established there, where, again, it's kind of crowding out a lot of native species. And you might think, well, that's great. You know, another pretty plant out in nature, the butterflies love it. But the reality is, is that they also love all of those other plants that are being crowded out by it, many mm -hmm. of which not only attract the adult butterflies like butterfly bush does, but they also serve as caterpillar host plants. And this is a great example of those ecological connections that I was talking about a second ago. Butterfly bush does not serve as a food source for any caterpillar of any butterfly or moth species because, again, it's not native to North America and those ecological connections don't exist. Our native plants are what the butterflies and moths need to complete their life cycle. And when they don't exist because non-native invasive plants have crowded them out, the, the populations of those animals go down. And even if you don't care about the butterflies and moths and their caterpillars, think about this. 96% of terrestrial birds, those are all the birds that we want to attract to our yard, feed their babies, specifically a diet of insects, primarily 
caterpillars of butterflies and moths. So when oh. you you know you plant something like butterfly bush thinking you're helping butterflies and then it becomes an invasive species in nature, you know, again, some adult butterflies are going to get a food resource, but in the big picture, you're actually eroding that that complex ecological connection, not be- not just between the plants and the butterflies and moths, but also the bird species that rely on those butterflies and moths. And then it kind of becomes a ripple effect. You know, it reminds me of that story that we were taught about when we were younger. It, I can't remember the exact one, but it was basically like this person had a time machine and they said, don't get out of the time machine because everything can change. And the person got out of the time machine and took one step on the soil and stepped on an insect. And it changed the entire course of history because yeah. of those ecological connections is what I would imagine are you talking about, right? Exactly. Yeah. And another easy way to think about it, um, particularly with the example I just gave is you know, just think back to, you know, probably middle school biology class. And, you know, when you learned about sort of a food web, you know, or a food chain where, you know, plants absorb energy from the sun and they pull up soil and minerals from uh, water and minerals from the soil. And, you know, they kind of produce carbohydrates in, in the form of their leaves or their nectar and things like that. Some animals will come eat those plants, whether, again, they feed on the leaves or they drink the flower nectar or they eat the fruits or the berries. Those animals then become food for other animals that are predatory, you know, kind of further along the food web, which then get, you know, become prey for bigger animals. And those predators are keeping the populations of the prey species kind of in check so they don't overwhelm. And so, again, you begin to see all of these multiple connections across all of the different species. And so, um, again, with non-native invasive species, they don't have those ecological connections. And think of a web where you've cut 20 of the strands, 20 out of 50 of the strands. It's not going to be as strong, right? So when things like disease happen or, you know, major storm events or human influence where we're kind of degrading the environment, those ecosystems become less resilient and less able to kind of withstand those pressures and they begin to crumble. And that's one of the reasons, that's the big reason why non-native invasive species are so problematic. All right, we've got to step aside for a quick recess, but we'll be back right after this. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you were talking about uh, plants and how it becomes problematic when a non-native species escapes cultivation, then that becomes an issue. How does it escape cultivation? Is that through pollination? No, not so much through pollination, um, although, you know, the plants, many plants would have to be pollinated in order to form the seeds that might eventually then, you know, kind of spread out into nature. Believe it or not, and again, this is somewhat counterintuitive, just like the butterfly bush example, Mm -hmm. many of our invasive plant species that are garden escapees are actually spread by wildlife. So there are many, many ornamental shrubs, for example, that produce berries, And those berries themselves are ornamental. And that's one of the reasons why the horticulture industry kind of developed them and and made them available. But certain fruit eating birds will eat the fruit and, you know, that helps them. They do get a meal from it. But 
in nature, fruit is basically uh, an evolutionary tactic to trick animals into dispersing the seeds of the plant. You know, plants can't pick up and walk around and spread their population. So they kind of rely on wildlife to do that. So the inside of the berry or the fruit are the seeds of the plant. And so the bird will eat that and they'll digest the fruit part of it, but the seed goes through their digestive tract and essentially they poop it out. And that that, that poop has um, a lot of nutrients in it that serves as fertilizer for the seed. So you get you know a bird like a mockingbird or a robin that likes to eat fruit and they'll eat the berries of some of these invasive plants and then they'll fly off into the you know the local national park or something like that and they'll drop that seed there and then that's how it becomes established so while some of those individual bird species might benefit from the food resource the net is sort of a loss because when that non-native species gets established out in nature, it's going to eliminate habitat for dozens or maybe even hundreds of species of plants, all of which have a whole set of wildlife that rely on them. Absolutely. Well, how are invasive species typically introduced to a new habit in the first place? Well, there's a whole bunch of different ways that invasive species could be introduced. So one of them is deliberate introduction by humans and the examples of garden plants are a great example of that where you know we find this beautiful plant the horticulture industry you know develops it puts it out in nurseries we buy it we plant it and it and then it escapes um similar to that is the the pet trade um you know we have introduced certain species outside of their native ranges where they have become invasive. So that could be, you know, well, a, a really great high profile example are the Burmese pythons that are an invasive yes. species in the Everglades in South Florida. So this is a species of snake. It's native to Asia. Um, it's, you know, an incredible species in and of itself. And this is actually a little side note, really, really important. None of these species that are invasive and non-native to ecosystems are like themselves bad. And this is something that sometimes when we get a little bit overzealous in our in our education efforts and, and conservation efforts to eliminate these species because they're causing environmental harm, uh, I think sometimes gets lost. So I wanna I wanna mention this, right? There's nothing evil about the Burmese pythons that are now an invasive species in Florida. They're just doing their natural behavior. What what this really is at its core is an extension of human beings and our activity and, and the negative impact that that can have. So whether that's, you know, causing pollution or deforestation, you know, one of the ways that we do that is that we are the primary cause of introductions of non-native species, some of which that can become invasive. So, you know, the snakes, they're just doing what comes to them naturally, which is be predators. It just so happens that these snakes can reach, you know, lengths of 20 feet or more. They're huge. And so in their native ecosystems, there's, again, kind of a balance there. But in in Florida, where they can survive the climate, um, these were animals that likely are escapees because you know, at least in some places, even today, you can buy these animals as pets. And, you know, I would caution buying a 20 foot reptile. Uh, <laughs> Who would ever probably... want that in the first place? I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I mean, there are folks that really love snakes and, you know, they're, they're reptile and amphibian enthusiasts and that kind of thing. But, you know, this is this is an example of maybe a, a species that probably isn't the best. Um, and so anyway, it's it's you know these these snakes are out there in in Florida now and it's theorized that it's uh, either or, or maybe a combination of both of deliberate releases of these animals when you know pet owners just really couldn't care for them anymore maybe became too dangerous mm-hmm. and potentially they're released during hurricanes 
you know, extreme weather events where, you know, and there are some documented cases of zoological facilities that, you know, or, or sort of pet facilities that had these big snakes in them and they were damaged and the snakes escaped into the wild. So once there's enough of them out there, you get this critical mass and then they can start breeding. And that's what's happened in Florida. And of course, nothing in our Florida ecosystems is is really sort of adapted to deal with a giant snake. Okay, and I was going to even- ask you that if I can just jump in because it's become such an issue in Florida that they have actual competitions where you go hunt the pythons and then the winner, you know, gets money if they catch more pythons than the other people and and that sort of thing. So, yeah. what is it that the pythons are doing to the Everglades ecosystem? Yeah, so again, they're top predators, right? So when these snakes um, get established, and when they get to their big size, literally they can eat everything that is is out there as as far as native wildlife goes, including the top predator in many of those Florida wetland ecosystems, which of course is the American alligator. And you know, American alligators males can get up to be like thirteen feet long. So these are no like you know easy easy animals that are prey. Um, of course, some of the pythons do become prey to alligators, especially when they're younger. But it's not so much the the impact that they're having isn't so much on the alligator population as it is on mammals and birds. Because when these snakes are young, you know, they're much smaller. And so they kind of gradually start feeding on larger and larger prey. But when they're smaller, they do feed on birds. And as they get to be medium sized, they feed on, on mammals primarily. And so in areas where there are kind of heavy densities of these Burmese pythons established in Florida. They are literally eating all of the small and medium-sized mammals. You know, some common species like raccoons and opossums, but even animals like bobcats that are, you know, are a little bit less common. And so it, you know, it could end up being a a real, you know, sort of negative impact in a bigger way on the populations of these animals in those ecosystems. And remember every species has all of these different interconnections in its native ecosystem. So what happens when you suddenly, you know, remove a whole kind of suite of wildlife because it's become food for this, this Burmese python and, you know, what if they're uh, against seed dispersers or they're an important grazer that's keeping a plant species under control. Again, you can kind of see how things quickly kind of spiral out of control. It's it's kind of crazy to think about because, you know, a lot of times, to your point earlier, human beings are the ones introducing these invasive species to the environment. And then we are the ones who try to then control it. It's like it's just so I mean, it's so nutty when you really think about it. And when you go to the people who are hunting pythons in Florida, in your opinion, I mean, should human beings be the ones who take it upon themselves to get rid of an invasive species? How how do you even manage that? So I would say absolutely, it is our responsibility to try to manage invasive species that are already established, but even more so to prevent them from getting introduced in the first place. Mm-hmm. And that's because, again, these are the, these are the problems that non-native invasive species cause are, again, not anything that they're doing maliciously you know, as as species. It's really just because we humans, in almost all cases, have moved them into these new ecosystems where they are now wreaking havoc. So it is our, you know, sort of our duty, our, our, our you know, from a conservation ethic point of view. Um, and, you know, this is why the National Wildlife Federation focuses on this issue of invasive species, because it's up to us to fix these problems that we've caused. And, you know, we've talked about sort of those deliberate 
introductions of species. So again, in the examples of garden plants or or pets that end up escaping because people release them or they you know really get accidentally released. But they're more than that. Typically, these species are getting introduced accidentally. So if you look at the ecosystems like the Great Lakes, for example, they are being bombarded with non-native species. And that's in part because ships come in with ballast water. So ships have to pull in water um, into these, these sort of holds within their hull that helps with balance and, and weight and things like that. And so when they suck water in from their original port and then they you know travel hundreds of miles or thousands of miles away, and then they get to their new port and they dump that ballast water, it can actually introduce all sorts of non-native species. And we've seen that in the Great Lakes. It's estimated that there's something like 85 non-native invasive species that have been introduced Whoa. to our Great Lakes ecosystem from ballast water, uh, or, or uh, there's 85 species that are non-native invasives. 54 of them are from ballast water. So these are everything from, uh, it, we've got several species of invasive carp that are really aggressively competing with uh, all of the native fish and other uh, aquatic animals there. There are invertebrates. There's the zebra mussel, which just kind of breeds like crazy and covers uh, all of the, 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 the underwater <laughs> surfaces, which can be problematic for everything from power plants to our native freshwater mussels. So um, it's, you know, th that kind of unintentional introduction is, is really kind of the most insidious. And there's any number of species that you can look at. I mean, look at the emerald ash borer. This is a beetle that was introduced um, here in the Eastern US where, where I'm based. And our native ash trees have no kind of defense against it. Uh, the, the beetles naturally will lay their eggs in trees and the beetles feed on the, the uh, underlayer of the bark of the ash tree. And where these this particular beetle is native in Asia, the ash trees kind of are evolved to this and it doesn't kill them. But our North American ash trees, they can't handle it and they die. And there are massive die-offs happening of ash trees all around the eastern U.S. and the mid-Atlantic. Um, you know, you think back to the American chestnut, which got infected, uh, you know, a century ago with a, a non-native blight that essentially wiped out all of the American chestnuts. And I keep going back to it, these ecological connections. Chestnut used to be one of the most important nut-producing trees in in the eastern the eastern half of the country and those nuts supported all sorts of different wildlife and so their disappearance you know had certainly a huge impact now they were able to be replaced by things like oaks and beaches well guess what in recent years both oaks and beaches are being affected by non-native invasive pathogens that could potentially wipe them out too all right we've got to step aside for a quick recess but we'll be back right after this Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So then in that case, what resources are available to try to combat those invasive species? Because to me, the python thing is pretty straightforward. Uh, you have these people going out there in the middle of the night trying to catch these pythons. But when it comes to something that is more widely spread and they're beetles, for example, how do you deal with that? 
it's it's really challenging um, to be honest with you. And so you know you there's there's all sorts of tactics, you know, sort of screening imports as they come into the country from different parts of the world. There's public education. So uh, you you might have seen the the sort of public education around things like the emerald ash borer and firewood because firewood can transport some of these. So a lot of times people will they'll, they'll buy firewood when they go camping. And they'll drive it, you know, to wherever it is that they're that they're going to go camp out, and then they'll use it there. And that actually is a, a vector that could introduce some of these non-native invertebrates and other things. So the idea with that is a public education campaign to basically say only use local firewood. You know, get your firewood wherever it is that you are going to. That kind of thing. Um, of course, there's you know policy and legislation that can be enacted, and um, and and you know at the end of the day, all of these efforts are worth it, not only because of the ecological importance. And again, you know, a lot of our native species are disappearing. And a big part of that, in many cases, is is the impact and the stress of invasive non-native species on top of everything else. You know, again, the habitat loss and pollution and over-harvesting and climate change and all of those things. So you have this compounding effect, but it also costs our, uh, you know, our economy. As I mentioned, uh, one of another great example of a non-native pathogen is citrus canker which was introduced and is now wiping out many of our citrus crops. And so, you know, the, the, a lot of money is lost every year from our economy because we just, you know, we lose these, these, uh, the, the, these crops and then farmers, you know, suffer economically and then that gets passed on in costs, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So it's an enormously complex issue, but I think for, you know, for folks listening, my advice would be, do a couple of things. Start local, like always, right? And think about, you know, what are you planting in your yard? Think about things like, again, firewood and, you know, are there ways that you can minimize being the source of introducing species? So, you know, in that case, I would say plant native species. This is actually something that the National Wildlife Federation has been promoting for like 50 years with our Garden for Wildlife program. And many of our native plants are beautiful and ornamental, and they're the plants that the local wildlife, from the birds to the butterflies, need to survive. So that's like a really simple thing that everybody can do that's really in the spirit of like, you know, sort of think globally, but act locally, you know, that old, old saying. Um, right. And, you know, otherwise it's, you know, it's a lot of the solutions do end up being um, kind of on the regulatory and policy oriented. But, you know, if you are, are a pet owner, definitely do not release any pets into the wild. You're not doing them any favors. Typically they die. And if they don't die, they could end up becoming the next invasive species. Right. How do you know it? Let's just take plants, for example. How do you know what is native to your area? Because I think about mint. I did not realize for the longest time that mint is an invasive species. I mean, that's something that everybody has in their garden. Yeah. Well, you know, the, so, so I'll answer that question, but I want to come back to, to the mint example, because there's a little bit of a difference between an aggressive plant, an aggressive grower, and a truly kind of ecologically invasive species. Uh, okay. Mint is, I would say, probably kind of on like the fence of that one, uh, that that distinction. But um, the best way to find out what's native to where you live is <laughs> go to the National Wildlife Federation's Native Plant Finder. We have a national database that we put together based on actual data, actual science, where you can put in your zip code. And what, the, what you'll get is a list of the top plants that serve as caterpillar host plants for butterflies and moths. So butterflies and moths start out life as caterpillars, unlike the adults that typically feed on flower nectar, 
with caterpillars, they have to eat the leaves of plants. Now, plants generally don't like their leaves getting eaten. So again, through this process of co-evolution, again, over centuries and millennia, the, the caterpillars and, and some of and these native plants kind of found this equilibrium. So certain plants, you know, plants produce these chemicals that will either taste bad to the caterpillars or kill them outright. So caterpillars, uh, butterflies and moths, these species have evolved immunity to some of these chemicals, but they can't be immune to every single chemical. So what they end up doing is specializing and they can only feed on the leaves of very certain plants. And if they try to eat the leaves of another different kind of plant, they die. So there again, another great example of an ecological connection. So what the native plant finder is on the National Wildlife Federation's website is the top caterpillar host plants native to your zip code and so you can click on that and you can get these lists that you can then use as shopping list we also happen to have a new sort of retail line of native plants so if you don't want to do all of that work you just want to go online and order collections of plants that we've curated to be the top producing native plants for our butterflies and moths for our songbirds for our native bees you know, we, we'll just deliver them to your door. But beyond the National Wildlife Federation's resources, you know, every state has local native plant societies. Google is your friend. Just Google like native plants for my state, and you should find some really fantastic resources. And you know, one more um, shameless plug: I have a book out. It's called Attracting Birds, Butterflies, and Other Backyard Wildlife, and I talk specifically all about how to create one of these kind of native plant-based wildlife habitat gardens that will look beautiful, but also support the local ecosystem. Oh, and I've got tons of that. lists of plants in there, including some of the top non-native plants that you want to avoid planting. Right. Oh, that's a great resource to have because, you know, it's if we're looking at these things, we do have the responsibility to make sure that we are acting in the best way we can for our environment around us. And it's hard to do sometimes because you just simply don't know sometimes. Right. Yeah. Um, it can be overwhelming. Right. I have one last question for you. When it comes to shopping for plants, I know we've focused a lot on plants and animals can be invasive species as well. Um, but if we're just sticking with the plant example, because um, I feel like that's probably a little more common when it comes to planting a garden or, you know, if you're getting ornamental plants and you're not buying, let's say, a python and then releasing it out in the wild. <laughs> um, do nurseries or uh, places where you buy plants in your neighborhood, do they follow the uh, native species kind of book of what you should be selling or are are there instances where your local nursery might be selling a non-native species unfortunately so many non-native invasive species are still available for sale in many places so mm. the horticulture industry has really come a long way I've been I've been working in this space with the National Wildlife Federation for over 20 years and when I first started, Back in the year 2000, you know, it was really difficult to find native plants in any nursery anywhere, even, you know, to have the nursery industry really know what you were talking about. Uh, today, fast forward, it's really come a long, long way. And so, you know, most uh, kind of specialty nurseries, their staff will be knowledgeable about native plants and they're probably selling some. And many nurseries actually have native plant sections. So, you know, be an informed consumer, do a little bit of research and reading and that kind of thing. And again, the information is out there to find some of the best native plant species for your area and then use that when you, you know, make those shopping lists and, and go and specifically ask for those plants. Now, again, a lot of non-native plants are still available. Again, where I am in, in sort of the mid-Atlantic Northeast, I'm thinking of things like 
Japanese barberry and butterfly bush. Uh, the barberry is really bad where I live. And if you go out into the woods around here, the entire understory is nothing but Japanese barberry in some places because the deer don't like to eat it. So instead, they devour all of the native shrubs and and tree seedlings and there's nothing left other than this non-native shrub um so yeah it's a it's a little bit of a mixed bag but i encourage folks you know to be an informed consumer and use your voice as a consumer and tell your nursery i want to buy native plants if you stock them and label them i will buy them and i don't want to buy invasive non-native species that are kind of trashing our environment. I don't want to be that person um, as far as a gardener goes. So that can be really, really powerful. The more nurseries hear that, the the more likely it is that they're going to carry the, the native plant material that kind of will help us reconnect our cities, our towns, our neighborhoods, starting with our own yards and gardens back into that bigger ecosystem. Definitely. Well, I appreciate all of your knowledge on this and um, sharing your insight because it is it is a tough thing to really realize that we're doing. And I mentioned at the very beginning before we started uh, recording, but I host a show about national parks. And so often you do see this. I mean, people are dragging things in without knowing it. Um, So it's a good thing to know more about. So, David, thank you so much for coming on Getting Schooled. We'll have to have you back soon. Anytime. All right, if you missed anything from class, these are my office hours, and here are some top takeaways about invasive species. Number one, David helps to break down the difference between an invasive species and a non-native species. Not all non-native species that are introduced to an environment are considered invasive. It's when they start to cause harm that they get that title. Species that naturally exist in an ecosystem have strong ecological connections, but ones who are invasive do not. So when they're introduced, they're actually eroding those complex ecological connections that exist already. Number two, some invasive species like the Burmese python impact their environments by disrupting the food chain. Not only do they eat smaller animals such as raccoons, they can also devour apex predators like the American alligator. This can cause extra competition and complicate the relationships that already exist between predators and prey in the environment. And number three, it's important to remember that the invasive species themselves are not evil or bad. It's just that they're harmful to the environment. So David emphasizes that it's up to us as humans to prevent the introduction and spread of invasive species. He suggests to think global, but start local. We can help combat invasive species by promoting the existence of native species and not releasing non-native species into the wild. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast and enduring me saying species a thousand times in one podcast. For more podcasts, you can go to foxnewspodcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this one on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen and leave us a review. This has been Getting Schooled with Abby Hornacek on the Fox News Podcast Network. Class dismissed. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.